I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, Frank Gavin comes for me from a conference that I went to that Pyramidiar helped uh, fund. Uh, and they had a longer term for it, but it was basically applied history. How can history be used better in decision-making? How has it been used badly in decision-making in the past? Historians are very good at sorting that out. If all goes well, I would love to see what Frank is talking about tonight become a subdiscipline within history and within foreign affairs and Kennedy School type stuff, become part of how people think about government, how they think about strategy making in large organizations, including corporations. And uh, if that discipline comes to happen, you will have seen the very first page of it tonight. Frank Gavin. Well, thank you, Stuart, for that very kind introduction. That's not too much to have to live up to now, creating a whole new discipline, but uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, first, let me say what an honor it is to be here. And to point out, this is a somewhat unusual venue for me, uh, not because this wonderful setting or this diverse audience uh, is uh, something that I don't like, but because of what I gather is the thrust of what these talks are about predicting or anticipating the future. This is not something historians typically do. And it's fact there's some skepticism about the whole notion of forecasting. We can't agree what happened in the past. <laughs> That's what we spend our time doing, fighting over what actually did happen, and we can't agree. So you can imagine how much skepticism we have about trying to think what is going to happen in the future. I'll just give you one example from my own work. I do a lot of work on nuclear politics and nuclear proliferation. And one of the most striking things about this field is alarmist predictions of disaster. Uh, pretty much every year throughout the whole period of uh, the nuclear age, there has been someone important predicting disaster was going to happen. And the most sort of famous example that I wrestle with all the time is President Kennedy gave a speech saying that by the 1970s there would be 20 or 30 nuclear powers in the world. And it never happened. Uh, there have been similar predictions about nuclear terrorist events happening, uh, people like Graham Allison and Bob Gallucci making these predictions, and they don't happen. Uh, and these predictions simply haven't come true, and in fact the opposite has happened. Uh, we have far fewer nuclear weapons programs around the world than we had 30 years ago. And I would argue these poor predictions have fed into some pretty terrible policies throughout the world over the years. So one might consider me a skeptic and wonder what I'm doing here. Just because a historical sensibility makes you cautious about predicting and forecasting does not mean it cannot help you think about and even prepare for the future. And that is why I'm here. Now what are the benefits, if any, to applying in a very rigorous manner, historical knowledge, knowledge and methodology to the making of U.S. foreign policy? Are there advantage for policymakers in thinking about the past in a serious way? And should historians consider these decision makers as part of their audience? 
Now, for an audience like this, I would assume that the answer would be, of course. Right? That's just a common sense sort of response, that a deep understanding of the past can only benefit us as we think about making important decisions in the future. Yet, I'm here to tell you that policymakers rarely call upon historians for insight. Perhaps even more surprising, however, is that there are a few serious attempts by what might be called scholarly historians trained and employed by our most important research universities in this country to write for a policy audience, nor is it common for policymakers to access their work. Now, there are exceptions here. I have some pictures of the uh, books that actually were the exceptions in this, and there's two really leading figures who've tried to change this, and uh, to be honest with you, have, have failed. Um, Paul Kennedy is one, and the most important is a great historian who just passed away this year, Ernest May. Uh, who spent much of his career trying to change this attitude, both in Washington and in the Ivory Tower, and for the most part, had very little success. Now, I could go into great detail about the current state of historical, the historical profession, and why Ernie May failed, and why the attempt to get historians and policymakers to engage each other has come to nothing. Uh, uh, that talk would depress you. Uh, <laughs> the situation is bleak. Um, there's this third quote here. I mean, the first two quotes I have are essentially about why it is you would want to have history, why you would want historical knowledge as opposed to things like law or economics or international relations theory, and about why, as the most important military power in the world, having some knowledge of your past is absolutely critical to making good decisions. But the last quote uh, probably says more about the field, the profession I find myself in, than just about any, and it came from uh, Jill Lepore. Quote, the American historical profession defines itself by its dedication to the proposition that looking to the past to explain the present falls outside of the realm of serious historical study. Now think about that. I, I, for sort of people who are not familiar with how the historical community works. I'm sure this is shocking. What this means is that no self-respecting historian would ever think of using his or her knowledge to advise policymakers. Such an effort would simply be dismissed as not serious, something that we just wouldn't do. Now, what explains this situation? There are at least three important reasons why historians and policymakers don't have um, a more fruitful relationship. And I, I should say these are legitimate reasons. These are important reasons. First, policymakers are not interested in the past for its own sake. Policymakers are forced to make extraordinarily difficult choices under enormous time pressures, and government officials understandably want usable knowledge that provides guidance for making the best decisions. Understandably, they seek certainty, particularly about the future, and they're grateful for clear-cut rules and parsimonious or simple explanations. That's not what we do. That's not what historians do. We don't do anything simple, we don't do anything parsimonious, uh, and we certainly don't like rules. Historians don't like to generalize over space and time, and the comparative advantage of history is, is, is in exposing complexity, nuance, and shades of gray. Studying the past discourages efforts to simplify or forecast, and I should point out that the two historians who are, were the leading um, advocates of the kind of thing I'm talking about, Ernest May and Paul Kennedy, in their efforts to make predictions, did a really bad job of it. 
we all know Paul Kennedy talked about in the late 1980s that Japan would be a superpower and leaving the United States behind. Ernest May, Ernest May made predictions in the 1970s that the Cold War was going to calm down and there would be no more militarization. This was right before um, uh, Ronald Reagan was elected. So there aren't a lot of really good examples of historians predicting the future and it doesn't give one a lot of confidence. Unlike economics and international relations theory, which aim for parsimony, generalization, and prediction, historical scholarship often appears to offer little that can be of immediate help to a policymaker. A second reason for the poor relationship is the deep suspicion that historians have of power and people who wield it. Scholars warn that historical work should not be used to validate broader political claims. And this is an important argument. If such a political effort is to be made, it should be made on behalf of groups and issues that have been ignored or underrepresented, not on behalf of policy elites. They've had the benefit of everything working out in history. Historians, if they're to engage in the uh, uh, process of advocating anything, it shouldn't be on behalf of policy elites. Furthermore, national history has a less than stellar record in many parts of the world, including at times the United States as the past has often been exploited to justify morally problematic policies. The record of scholars who have been in positions of power in the United States or have been close to power has not always been exemplary. And this is something that always uh, uh, needs watching. Finally, the third reason for uh, the fact that this relationship is not better is that it's important to remember that policy is only a very small part of the past which historians seek to explain. Even scholars like myself who focus on international history or American foreign relations are as likely to emphasize factors outside of the realm of policy as those in policy. We may focus on structural factors like geography, long-term trends such as demographic or economic shifts, or cultural or intellectual variables like the changing role of race and gender, or the emergence of new ideas when we explain why certain things happen and why things happen the way they do in the international environment. These aren't policy issues. Or they're, if they're policy issues, they're only policy issues at a very removed place. Now, all of these are very powerful reasons for historians to look for different audiences and for policymakers to seek wisdom and guidance elsewhere. The requirements for good historical scholarship are certainly, are, are rarely in line with the needs of decision makers in government. So what's my conclusion then? Does that mean that it's a bad idea for historians to write for policymakers and for policymakers to take an interest in historical methodology? Should the history professors stay locked in their ivory towers, keeping their knowledge to themselves far away from the corrupting influences of power in our nation's capital? Or should history and policy mix? Is history actually good for you? I wouldn't be here if I didn't think the answer was yes. <laughs> the issues policymakers confront are too important and the benefit of historical insight too great for them to avoid communicating with each other. Developing a historical sensibility can do much to improve policymakers' understanding of the world they find themselves in and depending on how the knowledge is used, improve the quality of policy. Now there are advantages for the historian as well. While scholars may want to maintain a healthy distance from the political process, it does not mean that their historical work should be obscure, filled with jargon, or irrelevant to the concerns of policymakers. 
And if you want to actually see what most historical scholarship looks like, look at some of the leading journals, and that is exactly what you'll see, jargon, irrelevance, and a lot of obscurity. Nor is there anything wrong with scholarship being useful. And it's fair to say that much of the professional historical field has, for any number of reasons, embraced methodologies and studied subjects that are far afield from the concerns or interests of a much larger public, to say nothing of the policy community. And now, while some of this cutting-edge work is to be admired, there's a danger that this scholarship is meaningful to smaller and smaller uh, audiences. Exploiting my own work on U.S. foreign strategic and economic policy during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, I would like to lay out five key concepts which, if properly understood and employed, should provide a firmer grasp on how historical analysis can be of benefit to policymakers, and not just to policymakers, but to an informed public uh, at large. These concepts are vertical history, horizontal history, chronological proportionality, unintended consequences, and policy insignificance. Now, I should note, none of these five concepts are particularly novel or profound. In fact, one of the advantages of possessing knowledge of the past and familiarity with historical methodology is a healthy skepticism of claims of profoundness or originality in either, the world of, in either the world of events or policy responses. Nor is it necessary to accept my historical interpretations that I'm going to give you tonight to recognize the value of these concepts. I'm going to lay out what I think happened in the past and what I believe it means. You can and should disagree with that while still accepting that the very process of wrestling with these interpretations can be extraordinarily uh, beneficial. In fact, developing a historical sensibility should encourage all of us to challenge the received wisdom about the past and current U.S. policies and encourage not just policymakers but the public at large to develop their own explanations. Now, the first concept is vertical history. What do I mean by vertical history? This is actually the simplest, most straightforward, and the one that most people are familiar with. When looking at any historical event or phenomena, the historian should first look at its temporal origins, its origins in time, and its spatial location and depth. Temporal origins and chronology might be thought of as vertical history. And again, this is the easiest concept, uh, sort of an A to B to C to D causality. Uh, it's sequential. Uh, it involves common-sense notions of causality and agency, uh, and it's essentially the story of how events unfold over time. But it deserves some further explora uh, exploration. While exploring events and explaining events over time would seem to be straightforward, it is never a simple or uncontested process, as anyone who has studied controversial issues, such as the causes of the First World War, understands. Identifying causes and agents depends upon the perspective of the historian, including spatially, culturally, and temporally. Causes can be either proximate or long-term. Despite these difficulties, however, sophisticated historical analysis is useful in both revealing the deeper origins of important events and exposing when the origins and causality are less clear than people may think. It's important to note that this kind of vertical history has less to do with the case study method that you might see in business school or among political scientists or process tracing, uh, and instead seeks to identify deeper, more complex, and often surprising chronological roots of a particular policy situation. 
one thing anyone in my field does all the time is wrestle with the origins of the First World War. And this is something, if you follow this debate, you would think at this point, after thousands and thousands of books and articles having been written about this, that we'd actually know what the answer is. But you see in this process of how scholars and historians wrestle with this, you can see how important understanding vertical, uh, uh, vertical history is. And it's often a balance. On the one hand, you have the proximate causes, the July crisis, uh, diplomatic dispatches, military timetables, the kind of intensity and pressure of what we know to be sort of the guns of August and the crisis of July. And that's balanced out with longer-term issues, demographic trends, right? the increasing pressure of population in Europe produced by industrialization and urbanization at the turn of the century. The influence of economic competition, and particularly imperialism, which had been developing over a century and a half, and the rising and extraordinarily powerful force of nationalism. So you have these long-term uh, causes and these short-term causes, and trying to wrestle and understand them is uh, a very important skill to develop. A good vertical history can also reveal when a seemingly small change within, within a complex system can produce profound changes to an international environment over time. And I'm going to give you an example of this. An example of how vertical history might be used to lift the veil to reveal the deeper, less known sources of the world policymakers face would be to reconstruct the long-term roots or causes of current U.S. policy in what might be termed the greater Middle East. This is obviously the most important region that we worry about uh, in our current policy environment. When and for what reasons did this region become such an important focus of U.S. policy? And how did American interests develop here? What are the causes of the United States' close relationship with such problematic allies, such as Saudi Arabia and Israel, and its bitter enmity with Iran? Now, these are very important questions, and I would think if you were in policy today, you would want to know the answers to them. Well, a contemporary analysis that focused on proximate causes might identify a variety of factors, ones that you're all familiar with and you might agree with. The importance of oil to the American economy, right? That's something that certainly has motivated things. The threat of terrorism, certainly since 9-11, and instability in the region. Concerns about nuclear proliferation and powerful domestic support for Israel uh, within the United States. Now, these interests, it's widely assumed, have driven U.S. policy for some time. And our policies in the region, at least it is believed, have been pretty much constant since the middle of the 20th century. Doing historical, detailed historical work, assessing the longer-term consequences might provide a more nuanced picture. Consider the following interpretation, based on historical analysis, of a series of relatively minor events that have profound long-term consequences for U.S. policy in the Middle East. Now, few people know this, but until the mid-1960s, the Middle East was not an area of primary geopolitical or strategic concern for the United States, falling far behind Europe and East Asia, and even at times behind Latin America as an area that the United States uh, considered a geopolitical pr uh, priority. It was Great Britain, not the United States, who in the Western alliance had primary responsibility for ensuring the security and stability of the region. Energy was not a first-order issue. Uh, we had more than enough oil up until the middle of the 1960s. And regional rivalries and conflicts between Saudi Arabia and Egypt or Syria and Iraq were of little concern to U.S. policymakers. Perhaps even most surprising, Israel was not even considered a particularly close ally. 
1965, the United States sold more weapons to Jordan than it did to Israel. Now, how and why did the situation change? The key to understanding the evolving role of the Middle East during the, is to understand it within the context of the Cold War rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States and a series of events that seemed small at the time but unfolded in ways that had a profound influence on the history of the region. A historian reconstructing the story might argue that starting in the late 1950s, but increasing in scope in the 1960s, the Soviets began to target the greater Middle East as a region where they could make geopolitical inroads. Western Europe was largely secure. East Asia was becoming increasingly uh, a place of U.S. dominance. But the Middle East appeared to be a place where the Soviet Union could actually have some influence. And under Khrushchev and continued by his successors, this became a primary focus of policy. Starting with Nasser's Egypt and moving to Iraq and Syria, Russia used vigorous diplomacy and generous aid to gain friends in the region. This effort caught the United States flat-footed. And when tensions between Israel and its Arab neighbors sparked a war in 1967, the Johnson administration was, for the most part, caught completely off guard. The United States was even less prepared for the consequences of the war. Now, recent historical work and looking in the archives has made it clear that Egypt and Syria's aggressiveness in the middle 1960s was, in no small part, driven by Soviet support and prodding, reflecting Russia's desire to gain greater influence in the region. Now, this is all well and good, but how did this end up changing U.S. policy in the region? Well, the war in 1967 created a financial crisis that exasperated an already desperate British balance of payments deficit that led in November of 1967 to a devaluation of sterling. More ominously, as a result of this devaluation, Great Britain announced its intent to withdraw its military commitment to the region. So this war created pressure on British currency, in order to sort of relieve some of this pressure, the British said, we're no longer going to support it militarily, and that left a serious dilemma, a conundrum for U.S. policymakers. The United States found itself, obviously, in 1967 in a very poor geopolitical position in the region. The Soviets were moving aggressively to establish strategic dominance in the region at the same time that its close ally, Great Britain, was pulling out. Why not enter and replace Great Britain? Why not sort of simply become the strategic guarantor of stability in the region? Well, it was 1967 and something else was going on, and that was the Vietnam War. And it was inconceivable that the United States in 1967 could muster either the military capability or, more importantly, the political will to do what it took to actually go in the Middle East to replace Great Britain. And the United States was suffering its own international monetary and financial problems as well. On the other hand, the United States was not willing to cede the region. So it couldn't go in on its own. It didn't want to cede the region. It faced this geopolitical challenge. What did it do? Well, it came up with what uh, has become known, first in the Johnson administration and then the Nixon administration, as a pillar strategy, providing massive military and political support to whatever ally they could find in the region that was willing to support their aims. And there were three in particular. Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Iran. In the years following the Six-Day War, each of these three countries were given or sold billions of dollars in the most cutting-edge military equipment, and our political relationship 
with each of the three changed dramatically. And this is, as a side note, something that's very interesting to look at in terms of our relationship with Iran. The United States, there's this kind of story, this narrative, it's especially popular in Iran, that the United States intervenes, overthrows the Mossadegh government in the early 1950s, and there's a straight continuous line to the revolution of 78 and 79, and we were bad the whole way throughout. In fact, we knew the Shah was a bad guy. And in the late 50s and early 60s, we would have had no problem whatsoever if he disappeared from the scene. And in fact, in 1963, it becomes very close to the Shah being deposed. We wouldn't have done a thing uh, to stop it. We also had the same ambivalence about the House of Saud in Israel. But after 1967, because of the strategic necessity to have allies in the region, our relationship uh, completely changed. And this is what, I would argue, produced the consequences for U.S. policy that persisted well beyond the Cold War. I should note that this was a relatively successful strategy. The Soviets, even though Iran uh, ended up turning against us, they didn't go in the Soviet camp. Soviet influence in the Middle East actually waned and decreased, and it was a relatively successful policy. Yet the consequences of it live with us to this very day. Now, this is, of course, only one plausible interpretation of U.S. policy in the Middle East. And the point here is not to argue that it is correct, but to reveal how much nuance and depth could provide, how thinking historically could provide the nuance and depth necessary to have greater insight into the policy environment U.S. policymakers face today. How many people do you think making policy on the Middle East have even the most basic understanding of the story that I just told? Yet even if you disagree with my interpretation, clearly it is something that has to be wrestled with and understood. This kind of history also real, uh, reveals that factors that seem small, in this case the British and American balance of payments deficit, can have larger and unimagined longer-term consequences on the policy environment. A policymaker, or a historian for that matter, would not have to accept an interpretation based on the centrality of the 1967 war to explain U.S. policy in the greater Middle East today in the same way one would neither need believe the First World War was caused by long-term demographic pressures, the effects of European uh, imperialism, or Germans' mobilization schedules in August 1914. But it's the very act of wrestling with these interpretations, understanding these different perspectives, trying to make sense of them, that actually provides the deeper context to contemporary events and reveals the complexity under the surface of the most important global policy issues we face today. Now the second concept is one I call horizontal history. An understanding of the past doesn't just relate to how things evolve over time. It's also how they relate over space. History can expose horizontal connections over space and in depth that no one would have ever known. In other words, good historical work can move side to side, not just front to back, or laterally, and can reveal linkages between issues that are not readily apparent at first glance. This is the horizontal or spatial depth axis on a historian's imaginary graph. Again, I'm going to give another sort of obscure, somewhat boring historical example, though, to show how all these things are actually linked up in a sort of more exciting way. Uh, consider American foreign policy in the 1960s, and look again at the obscure issue of international monetary and financial relations, and particularly this U.S. balance of payments deficit. Now, for a variety of reasons, uh, including the somewhat inefficient and contradictory rules of the Bretton Woods international monetary system, the United States began hemorrhaging dollars and losing its gold supply 
uh, in the 1960s. And surplus countries were using these uh, surplus dollars to buy gold during the later years of the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administration. And this was seen as a grave economic threat. In fact, most economists at the time, in a way we forget, thought if this was not handled correctly, that you could have a repeat of the 1930s and the sort of global deflation that brought about the Depression and also led to international conflagration. Now, there was a lot of... Um, misunderstanding of how international economics worked, and that's always a challenge for a historian. What do you do when people believe things that aren't actually true or probably won't happen? But from a historical perspective, what was important is someone like President Kennedy was absolutely obsessed with this issue. He was convinced that if there was a run on gold, he would be forced to do things that could lead to really grave consequences, both for the national economy and the international economy, and he wanted to avoid this at all costs. So right in the middle, pretty mundane, fairly boring issue, the balance of payments deficit. Now, both administrations sought to end this dollar and gold drain without resorting to restrictionist economic policies, uh, such as interest rate hikes, trade barriers, and capital controls. Your normal response when you have this kind of fixed exchange rate system, when you're losing, when your currency's in deficit, is to do some really unpleasant things that shrink your own economy. You hike interest rates, capital controls, trade restrictions. No president wants to do those kind of things. So Kennedy, Eisenhower, Johnson, they all sought policies that would somehow solve this problem without actually um, uh, following the restrictive policies that could hurt the economy and guarantee that they didn't get elected again. So, both, so all three of these administrations focused on a particularly expensive part of U.S. expenses abroad. And that was the cost of U.S. troops and their families living abroad. The largest part of the balance of payments deficit was the cost of 300,000 U.S. troops living in Germany with their families. And it just so happened that the largest surplus country, the country that had those dollars and was turning them in for gold, happened to be West Germany. So for understandable reasons, policymakers began to focus on this particular account and focus on what could they do to reduce uh, the balance of payments costs of troops in Western Germany and Western Europe. But there were a series of problems with doing this. At a time when nuclear parity with the Soviets was right around the corner, people were worried, and the West Germans made it very clear they were worried about this, that plans to pull U.S. troops out of Europe could undermine the credibility of the U.S. commitment to defend Western Europe against the Soviets. And one had to worry, how would the Soviets interpret this? Would, they, would this affect, uh, what effect would this clash over economic and security issues have on the cohesion of the Western alliance? The issue was even more complex when the issue of nuclear policies were taken into account. Europeans on both sides of the Iron Curtain agreed on only one thing during the 1960s, and that was that the West Germans could never be allowed to have access to atomic weapons. Yet since the 1950s, the West Germans had expressed great interest in having atomic weapons. And this was the primary cause of the conflict between the Soviets and the Americans in the 1950s and the 1960s. So how does this relate to the balance of payments? If the U.S. was pulling troops out of Western Europe, and if the West Germans felt increasingly insecure and didn't believe that the Americans would come to their defense, then they would start to wonder, can we trust the Americans? Should we defend ourselves? We're facing this enormous enemy that has nuclear weapons. Maybe we should have nuclear weapons of our own. And in fact, 
one of the threats the West Germans keep making is they say, you keep pulling troops out, and it's going to be very hard for us not to do things that are going to lead us down the road of having uh, our own uh, nuclear weapons. Now, as you can see, all these things end up linking together. Uh, and in the end, a series of complex and hard-fought deals were worked out that reassured West Germany while keeping it non-nuclear, protecting the dollar, and lessening uh, the outflow of U.S. gold. And in fact, it is this very deal that leads to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Right? If you go to any sort of policymaker and say, where did the Non-Proliferation Treaty come from? I guarantee you none of them will say, well, it had something to do with the balance of payments deficit in the 1960s, right? But you can see that there's this direct connection between concerns over international monetary relations, to doing something about the balance of payments, to the security of the Western alliance, to German nuclearization, and uh, this whole series of policies are constructed to deal with all these issues, which end up manifesting itself in the uh, non-proliferation uh, uh, agreement of 1968. Now, many analysts, international political economists, nuclear strategists, experts in Germany, trade experts, have looked at each of these particular issues in isolation. A trade person will look at the trade effects. An international monetary person will look at the monetary stuff. A German expert will look at Germany. A nuclear person will look at uh, the nuclear issues. Very rarely are these brought together, and that's what historians do. Historians make those horizontal linkages. Good horizontal work can reveal the complex interconnections and trade-offs that permeate the most important foreign policies. This bird's eye view actually provides a more holistic view of how policymaking actually works. This is how policymaking works. Right? The higher you go in the policymaking process, it's rare that you just get to deal with one issue and not think about its consequences. I remember having this insight when listening to the presidential tapes that I worked on years ago at the Miller Center. And you would listen, President Kennedy would have a meeting at 9 a.m. on the balance of payments. 10 a.m. on the tax cut, 11 a.m. on Berlin, 12 noon on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and so on and so forth. Now, he was the only guy in all those meetings. He understood all those linkages. Every time a new group of experts would come in and a whole bunch of other ones would leave. But one of the things that was clear was the guy at the top understood that all these things were deeply interconnected. And in order to make better policy, more effective policy, understanding how those connections work and understanding that those exist are incredibly important. Think about our current policy towards, say, Pakistan today, or China's current account surplus. I know a lot of people probably have concerns about that. I guarantee you, I don't know what they are, but you can do the same chart for each of those issues. And there's all sorts of issues and connections that you never would have thought of that bear on the question that you're looking at. Uh, and all of these policies are, uh, can be better understood through a lens that includes horizontal historical analysis. The third concept is one I call chronological proportionality. And here the question is very simple. How do we assess the long-term consequences and effects of a current policy question? You pick up your newspaper, you pick up the New York Times, and there's 10 or 15 articles you read. What are the ones that really matter? What are the issues that you're reading in the newspaper that are actually going to be of any consequence 20 or 30 years from now? That's a, actually a very hard thing to do, and this is what um, the whole skill, the notion of chronological proportionality uh, sets out to try to achieve. There's all sorts of issues um, 
there, there's many issues that seem like a very big deal when they happen, and they can turn out to be, in the long run, far less consequential than we originally imagined. Other issues receive less contemporary attention, and they turn out to have far more important long-term consequences when through, through a historical lens. Now, the standard probably most of us use, media coverage, is, of course, absolutely the wrong one, right? A few things I know, but the one thing I know when I do my first reading of history is the New York Times always gets it wrong, right? And if the New York Times gets it wrong, you can only imagine what the media writ large gets wrong. And this is the idea of figuring out in real time, in contemporary time, what will matter in the long run. And the media is very bad at doing that. But I'm going to use an example from the past that's very controversial to kind of highlight that, and that's the Vietnam War. Now, the Vietnam War, if you pick up any textbook on 20th century American history, any book on the 1960s, any book on U.S. foreign policy, any discussion among policymakers of a certain age in Washington, and the Vietnam War is, of course, of central defining importance. It was a brutal and, to many minds, misguided conflict, took thousands, tens of thousands of American lives, debilitated the U.S. economy, and left a bitter political and cultural legacy that permanently affected American institutions. But I would ask, looking back from the current perspective, was the Vietnam War as important? Was it the only international policy issue of great significance that was going on at that time? Was the war in Southeast Asia in fact, the most important long-term U.S. foreign policy question of the day. If you picked up the New York Times at the time, of course it was. But if you thought historically and thought in terms of chronological proportionality, um, would it be that way? Well, I've already highlighted to you what I think the consequences and legacy of the 1967 Six-Day War had for U.S. policy in the Middle East. There's no denying that what... U.S. policy in the Middle East right now is at the forefront the most important thing that most foreign policy people are thinking about, particularly if you expand it to the greater Middle East. And I would argue the 1967 war was perhaps the key event in shaping the policies environment that we face today. Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, 1968. I alluded to some of its odd and unusual origins. If you were to poll most foreign policy experts today and say what is the most important global policy facing, issue facing the United States, it would be nuclear proliferation. The Obama administration has made it their priority, their absolute, their foremost thing that they want as part of their legacy to be the question of nuclear proliferation. The Nuclear Proliferation Treaty was negotiated and signed during this period. If you pick up a New York Times during that period, you might see a mention on B3 or something of the negotiations, but it's dwarfed by any mention of the Vietnam War. It wasn't completely ignored, but it was certainly not given anywhere near the attention of the Vietnam War. Longer-term developments, such as the emerging stability and detente in Central Europe, which starts to take root in the 1960s, or the evolving fall between the United States and China, which is perhaps one of the most important geopolitical events of our lifetime, begin uh, in the 1960s. And these had extraordinary long-term consequences for wor world politics. But lacking a singular event or crisis, these tectonic shifts in world politics were often underplayed, and in China's case, at least until Nixon's, uh, Nixon's visit to China in 1972. Now, I'm being purposely controversial here. This is not to diminish the historical importance of the Vietnam War or even in our own times, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
It's merely to point out that such events can crowd out the focus on other less noisy developments that may have equal or even greater long-term consequences. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of other things going on in the world right now that 30 years from now will make us wonder why we were thinking about Afghanistan so much. Uh, any number of issues, and that we'll see the same thing uh, happen there. Uh, developing the historian's skill of chronological proportionality can help a policymaker see the bigger picture. The rise of China, shifting demographic trends, changes in the sources of energy supply may turn out to have an equal or even greater long-term consequence for U.S. global policy than Iraq or the Afghan war, even if they do not dominate the front page of the newspaper in the same way that each of these wars do. The fourth concept, unintended consequences. History is also good at exposing the ironies, dilemmas, and unintended consequences of policy. Consider again the consequences of the Vietnam War. What would have happened if the United States had quote unquote won the Vietnam War? What if we play the counterfactual of a US victory in Southeast Asia and see if we can play out what history might have looked like and whether it would have been a good thing or not. One plausible scenario is not, it's not hard to imagine that you would have had a United States bogged down in South Vietnam, drained, keeping its uh, military resources and economic resources pouring into Southeast Asia, forever pouring in blood and treasure to support a weak state surrounded by enemies. If the United States had won in Vietnam, China and Russia may have subsumed their mutual enmity to the larger goal of reducing American power in Asia. Remember, the Russians and the Chinese hated each other, but that hatred did not really emerge until it was clear that the U.S. was leaving Southeast Asia. If we had stayed, the Chinese and Russians would have had all the more reason uh, to cooperate with each other. It is certainly hard to imagine the rifts between a Vietnam and China, which emerged after we left, flowering into an open conflict if the United States had won the war. But the United States, of course, did lose the war in Southeast Asia, and it did bring its forces home. The military defeat of the United States, though terrible, though a terrible, humiliating drag on American power and reputation, ushered in a period of intense reassessment within many institutions, particularly the military, which arguably had greater long-term consequences for American military power. You talk to anyone in the U.S. military uh, of a certain age and of a certain rank, and they talk about the signal experience of the Vietnam War and how that shaped and changed the way they view the institution and how the U.S. military went through extraordinarily dramatic reforms, which may not have ever happened in, if the war in Southeast Asia had turned out differently. More importantly, of course, from a geopolitical perspective, is a U.S. withdrawal may have hastened the bitter Sino-Soviet split. It's not a coincidence that as we are leaving Southeast Asia, we're becoming friends with China. And as we're leaving Southeast Asia, Russia and China develop more and more bitter hatred for each other. Perhaps the biggest surprise in all of this is that China, once they successfully get the United States out of Southeast Asia, ends up having a war with a unified Vietnam. Now, from the perspective of geopolitics, a U.S. defeat, which divided the communist world in Asia, was much better than a victory, which would have led to an expensive long-term commitment in the face of a unified 
communist front. One might also speculate that the weakened status of the United States could have tempted the Soviet Union to intervene more deeply in places like Africa and Afghanistan in ways that certainly were of no help whatsoever to long-term uh, Soviet uh, position in the world. Understanding that history is not always linear and that the force of events can have powerful and unanticipated effects does not mean that policymakers can be expected to understand how their policies can produce unexpected and indeed unwanted consequences. I'm the one who started out by saying you can't predict the future and you shouldn't try. But I'd also would not suggest just blithely using counterfactuals in order to try to predict what's actually going to happen. What I am saying, though, is that this kind of historical knowledge that emphasizes that important events almost always have unforeseen and unintended uh, results, it should provide some humility to the decision maker. It should sensitize people in decisions of great in, in positions of great responsibility to the, to the fact that things can and will go wrong, and the only thing that we can predict with any certainty is that things will turn out much differently than you would ever plan. And the whole idea here is to look beyond disaster and defeat and paradise in victory. What's the fifth concept? The fifth concept is to develop the skill to recognize when policy is insignificant. This is probably the hardest one for policymakers. This is what policymakers do, right? You, and I, I teach at a policy school, and you ask policy students, how does the world work? Well, you know, I join an NGO, I get into government, and then we shift and change the world, and that's how things work, right? 90% of the world is driven by the policymaking process. Uh, the rest of it, you know, is sort of kind of all fluff. Well, that's not how the world works, right? A familiarity with good historical work can help government officials and people in other organizations understand that when they're making and implementing policy, policy is nowhere near as important as they're accustomed to thinking. In other words, history can provide policymakers or decision makers with the confidence to do nothing. Right? This is one of the, this is a skill we would love people in Washington and lots of other places to have. Do nothing. This is true even when events or the historical processes that this is true even when events and historical processes influence or even shape the policy environment. Reflect upon the global position of the United States in the mid-1970s. I want to give you sort of a story that, as Californians, you're all going to be very familiar with and very proud of, but I think uh, highlights uh, what I'm trying to get at. Again, the U.S., 1975. How do things look? Not very good. Right? We just lost a war. We had a president resign in disgrace. The economy is suffering greatly. Uh, there's a sense of uh, political and cultural malaise. Was there anything in 1975 that would have led anyone to predict that the United States was about to begin an extraordinary three-decade-plus economic and technological surge, the likes of which the world had never seen before? In retrospect, uh, this post-Vietnam era, which at the time anyone in any position of power, any commentator, talked about as the decline of the United States, actually were the seeds, the roots of a great American rebirth and a great sort of uh, renaissance in American power. It was actually the birth date of our current age of power, triggered by globalization-led economic growth. And there's three fun California events that I used to sort of highlight how no one could have seen this coming. And they're somewhat anecdotal. 
right? But it's to show, I mean, if national policymakers care about power, and we live in an age where power is the tool you use, and if these are the things that led to you having power, and policy had nothing to do with it, that should be an important lesson. Now consider these three events. The first, obviously, the creation of the first Apple computer in 1976, signaling the dawn of the high-tech age dominated by Silicon Valley and a revolution in telecommunications and information technology. Who in Washington saw that coming? Anyone? The second event, the release of the 1977 of the movie Star Wars, the highest grossing movie of all time, highlighting the increased dominance of U.S. popular culture that would spread around the globe like wildflower. People are probably familiar with Joe Nye's notion of soft power, the idea that your culture and your ideas and your beliefs are an incredibly important instrument in spreading your national interest. Well, how does that manifest itself? Coca-Cola, Levi Jeans, Star Wars. Right? This is the signal that American culture, which one could have imagined would be in a period of decline, this is the beginning when we see American culture actually uh, stepping up and increasing its influence around the world. And the third is always my favorite, and this sort of drives my policymaker friends nuts, and that's the Stags, the famous Stags Leap victory over Paris wines. Because the one complaint you get around the world, oh, globalization, it's this American, it's that sort of dumbing down of everything, lowest common denominator. Yet here, to a certain extent, from a historical perspective, the story of Napa Valley is almost more interesting than the story of Silicon Valley, right? I mean, here is something that, you know, in the 1950s, nothing's happening. And by 1976, this event signals this ability of high-end value-added American ingenuity to trump anyone in the world, right? It's not just making schlocky films. The French can, can't just turn around and say, oh, it's all Star Wars. We make better wine than you do, right? <laughs> we figured something out. Now, all three of these stories are anecdotal, obviously, and alone explain little, but combined they give you a sense of the tectonic shifts in American culture. It's politics, and in particular its economy, that would reshape forever the global landscape and create the world we live in today and create the policy environment that policymakers have to deal with. Now, there's no way of knowing, of course, how the trends represented by these three interrelated events would have transformed the international order. I'm sure nobody at Apple Computer or George Lucas or anyone in Napa Valley was thinking, all right, this is, you know, this is how we're going to win the Cold War. Uh, but these stories serve as important reminders to policymakers that many of the events that leave them, have the most effect on the policy environment are not always the direct result of policy decisions. No one in Washington had much to do with the making of Star Wars, the first Apple computer, or the fine wines of Northern California, nor did these events have much to do with foreign policy, narrowly defined. All three, however, had enormous consequences for America's power and role in the world for decades to come. So by emphasizing factors outside of policy, things like culture, demographics, economic trends, innovation, social changes, historians are more aware of these forces. And understanding this history and understanding how this shapes the world we live in can sensitize policymakers to the large, complex, and uncertain world outside of government decision-making. 
Scholars and government officials often focus on narrow definitions of foreign policy. And those that do, that were operating in the 1970s, thought they lived in an era of decline and malaise. But we look back now and we see this is the seeds and the origins of something very, very important. And what a policymaker who's sensitized to these ideas should be able to do is to recognize the world they operate in today had its seed in the supposed malaise. And it shows you that all, history happens in all sorts of strange ways and comes from all sorts of strange places. Uh, many of them we can't control. And it should also act as a caution to pundits or policymakers who claim to identify an overarching trend in the world we live in today, who will make hard and fast assessments about America's global position. The, this slide should make you, anytime you hear anyone in 2010 tell you anything about where America's power is going, you should just shut your ears or laugh because there is no one in 1976 and 1977 who thought anything but the United States was in a period of decline. I'm actually working on a paper right now with someone uh, called That 70s Show, which is the look, is the United States now like the US in the 1970s, or is it like Great Britain in the 1870s? In the 1870s in Great Britain, the United States, uh, Great Britain had everything going for it leading technology, great military power, incredible education system, and that decade was the beginning of their long, slow, and painful decline. To conclude, it's natural to think of events unfolding in transparent and linear fashion, and it's no surprise that we desire crisp, parsimonious explanations of the most important issues we face. Mix in the element of intense time pressure, and it's easy to see why most policymakers don't or can't embrace the complexities, uncertainties, and ambiguities that mark historical explanation. And the payoff for acquiring such skills is not always readily apparent. A familiarity with good historical scholarship will not necessarily help government officials make specific policies on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know what this lecture would necessarily tell a person about how they should conduct policy in Afghanistan. I might have opinions like anyone else, uh, but that's not really what this, uh, these sets of skills are, are aimed to do, to provide specific advice. Nor will historical analysis provide an overarching framework or theory in which the viewer understand the world. I, I know people like this. This is natural to have this, and historians, this is not what we provide. Acquiring these historical skills will, however, provide other important benefits. These five concepts discussed above will allow the policymaker to identify patterns and trends that shape the policy environment. It may allow him or her to recognize and go beyond the surface level picture of an event to access a deeper logic moving things underneath the surface. Historical analysis will provide a more finely tuned sense of the consequences both of events and of policy responses. In the end, understanding these five concepts should make for more deliberate, thoughtful, and hopefully more successful U.S. foreign policy. And there are no reasons policymakers and diplomats from other countries cannot benefit from applying these rules and methods as well. Historians would also benefit from considering the concerns and interests of the policy world. Keeping this important audience in mind, Intelligent government professionals who are often overwhelmed by the complexity and difficulty of the policy choices they face and terrified of the consequences if they make a mistake. 
If these people were kept in mind while we were researching and writing uh, about the past, I believe it could only sharpen and improve our scholarly work. Appreciating the past for its own sake is an important mantra for professional historians. I believe it. I think that history doesn't necessarily have to be useful, doesn't ha necessarily have to have a utility for it to be important, for it to make uh, you wiser, uh, to make you understand the world more. However, this value does not have to be sacrificed, and in fact should not be sacrificed in order to write in a style and on subjects that will engage and educate the policy world. Like the workings of history itself, the benefits of a relationship between historians and policymakers are not obvious, particularly at first glance. The deeper one looks, however, the clearer it is that they share important interests and concerns, and they are far, far better off with each other than without each other. Thank you. Let's sit over here. Great. What are, um, <clears throat> what are some classic misuses of history? Vietnam, you know, every national policy meeting I've been around, the, the discussion is sort of, well, is this Vietnam or is this man on the moon? <laughs> it's a great question, and uh, history provides a real dilemma in that we actually all think historically. It's just a natural thing to do. And uh, Ernie May once said, look, the reason we have to train policymakers is it's a lot like sex education for teenagers. They're going to do it. They might as well enjoy it and do it better and do it safer. <laughs> and, but that doesn't actually guarantee you're going to get it right. So I would say one of the biggest uh, problems that people make is falsely uh, making false analogies from the past. This is something that came up in 2002 again and again about uh, the war in Iraq, uh, comparing a dictator to Hitler, the idea that you would compare Saddam Hussein to Hitler and that you should never appease, and there's these certain lessons of history. In fact, sometimes it's almost more scary when people use history poorly than when if they don't use it at all. Uh, and uh, we've seen plenty of examples of that. And, and just to give one other example, one of the things that uh, got me interested in the nuclear proliferation question was uh, lots of my friends in the policy world and 2001, 2002, we're comparing, talking about this whole rogue state phenomenon, how you couldn't allow someone like Saddam Hussein to have nuclear weapons. I, I would prefer to live in a world where there weren't nuclear weapons, and particularly where Saddam Hussein didn't have them. But as I did my historical work, I looked at the U.S. responses to China's nuclearization in 1964. You want to talk about a rogue regime. Mao's China? Right? I mean, the kind of statements he made, he made statements saying, we can fight a war with the United States, lose 300 million people, we'll still have 300 million people. <laughs> so we'll still win. Uh, he had uh, 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 25 million of his own citizens had died during the, the Great Leap Forward. He had fought India a few years earlier, had fought the United States. If there was ever a state to worry about being irresponsible about having nuclear weapons, it was China, 1964. Eight years later, they're our ally. And that doesn't mean that that would necessarily happen again, but it was a, the kind of understanding of the past that should have, and it was recent past, should have given people, when they think about Iraq or Iran, some pause. 
Well, what gives me pause is my contemporaries in 1964 were quoting Mao approvingly that <laughs> a revolution is not a tea party, power comes out of the barrel of a gun, uh, barefoot doctors, and you know, <laughs> whoa. Uh, funny we're not doing that for the Iran. It's yeah. Somehow that that's a model of how the left should behave. Um, question from Praveen. You said the media often gets it wrong. I think you said the media mm -hmm. always gets it wrong. Uh, why do you think that happens, and what should media organizations do differently, or bloggers for that matter? It's a very good question. Uh, one, of the, and the, one of the real benefits of history is the providing a perspective. But what I am actually advocating is to try to do more contemporary history. So it's a little bit tough because um, journalists are going to respond to the events of the day and they're going to have to do it in real time and they're going to have a very difficult time measuring and weighing what's important. And so that's the first, and that's, that's the excusable part. As a historian, I would probably make the same mistakes, but at least knowing something about the past would have, give me a sense that, you know, in 1994, maybe the, what's happening with O.J. Simpson isn't the most important thing in the world. No one will talk about it five years later, and I won't sort of have a blaring coverage on CNN uh, or the New York Times. What are the signs for an editor? that this is something that might have long-term consequence and we should maybe play it up because we're the New York Times and we do that? You know, it's a good question. We're very events-oriented, and so some of the things that are most important, I, and I have to say, I, there is some encouragement on this. You look at the reaction in the press's coverage on global climate change, and it actually is, it's a sign that there is hope. Here is something that there's not a singular event. It's a process that develops over time. It's technical. It's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. Uh, uh, it's a bunch of eggheads talking about it, which in America that always guarantees death for any sort of story. And yet it's had some resonance. And it would be interesting to actually study why that is, because uh, you would actually predict that no one would actually cover that. Uh, the, se the second reason, though, in addition to not having perspective, is these things are market-driven, right? People want, you know, why do people look at accidents on the road? They know they shouldn't, but that's what they want. And, you know, the media is only a reflection. I mean, if tomorrow everybody wanted to go out and uh, watch people recite Aristotle uh, on television, then that's what CNN would do, right? It's not CNN pushing this down anybody's throat. Uh, but so part of it is developing our own sense of what is important and what's not important. Well, you mentioned climate change. Um, what are the historical precedents for climate change? And you know, are historians any use in this discussion? Yeah, the, one of the things that's really challenging is that, and I would actually have added this as a sixth skill, is that there are times where the past actually doesn't provide us with a lot of good lessons. And that's actually a good thing to know. If you can look in the past, the, the, the most interesting thing, of course, about climate change from a foreign policy perspective is that its solutions it's a problem of the, uh, it's a sort of a public goods, global commons problems. Its solution is going to necessarily have to be transnational. Uh, the sort of, in, the, the way most historians of international relations think, they think about states being actors, they think about relative gains, and that doesn't work here. So there aren't a lot of really good models. There's some in international economics uh, in terms of the idea that there is a, place where if we all cooperate, we all benefit. But even if there isn't a precedent for climate change, recognizing that and understanding that's important. Because uh, uh, 
we oftentimes make claims of things being novel. And more often than not, they're wrong. But if you can actually go back and say, I've looked at this, this is a unique problem, it is novel. Then that opens up the possibility to think differently. And off the top of my head, there aren't a lot of historical precedents that provide us macro guidance for how to deal with climate change. But that's okay, because that will help spur innovation to think, all right, now it's fine to think about new ideas. Kevin Kelly asked, do you have any examples of a leader or group that has used history in the way you recommend? Well, you've been around some policy making, I think. Yeah. Uh, did they listen? Uh, were you glad they did? Uh, stuff like that. I would, what you see is that certain leaders are more, un, understand more that they're under, that they have a historical legacy they have to worry about and that their decisions are going to matter. What's the dynamic of that? Why does, that, that's the way they actually seem to think larger than the immediate day and then that, that there's this legacy thing. And so right. they're concerned not about present historians talking about the past, but they are concerned about future right. historians right. talking about them. Well, it even goes beyond that. I'll give you a, a perfect example. One of my, President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh -huh. And I have an interpretation of the Cuban Missile Crisis that's a little different than most. People normally assume that Kennedy gets together these smart people in a room for 13 days and they discuss and debate what the best solutions are and they come out with the best ideas. I actually think he put those 13 people in a room so he could keep them there, not causing problems. And then he actually went out with his brother and they pursued an informal line of uh, diplomacy with the Soviets because their advisors were saying, you need to be hawkish, you need oh. to be hard, you need to do things that this is, this is all, if you, if you negotiate, this is, you're going to be like Neville Chamberlain. And Kennedy had an instinct that wasn't right. He had an instinct that he would have a really hard time explaining to the world, if there was a world, that he had pursued policies that had led to the deaths of tens if not hundreds of millions of people. Did Khrushchev think the same way, do you think? He did, he did. Um, Khrushchev is one of the most fascinating, irresponsible sort of political leaders ever. He knew he'd got himself in trouble. And Kennedy, through his knowledge of history, understood that the last thing you do with an enemy is push him in a corner so they can't get out. And so they pursued a whole completely different line of diplomacy. And in fact, Dean Acheson figured this out. And no one's ever really talked about this. Dean Acheson was very hawkish. You can't back down. And Acheson said, I'm not going to any more of these meetings because it's clear this isn't where policy is being made. Kennedy kept these people locked in the White House so that he could then go and make the policies that got him, got the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis such that it ended in a way that was beneficial to the United States and didn't lead to a nuclear war. And many of the things that were being discussed in that room were not, were things we especially now know uh, that uh, things were a little scarier than we even would have imagined. If we'd had an airstrike, if we'd had a land invasion, there were tactical nuclear weapons that may have been under control of the Cubans who wanted to use these things, and who knows what would have happened. And Kennedy had this sense, and it's, a, I think, a larger historical sense that he had a responsibility and duty to think beyond the moment he lived in, to think uh, sort of in a larger sense, what is this going to look like 20 or 30 years? Not just for historians, but when you're dealing with nuclear weapons mm -hmm. as to what the consequences of your actions might be. So he dialed it back, and instead all we did was kind of embargo and, mm -hmm. and uh, stop a ship but not shoot it down and stuff like that. Are some examples that you have of policymakers brilliantly doing nothing? 
brilliantly doing nothing is probably the hardest thing in the world because you don't get any credit for brilliantly doing nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, um, let's see if the Obama... But if we listen to historians, yeah. then that would become a new category. Right. And, and you know, some leaders would be so proud. I brilliantly right. did nothing for the first <laughs> three years of my administration. Right. There, there's Clearly, I need to improve the sort of political uh, spin aspects of these recommendations uh, because running on a platform of I will do nothing for four years. Think of the last couple of elections if someone had actually run on that. Hey, That's I'll looking pretty good, right? I would say, and there's a very big split in the administration about this, but uh, in terms of policy towards Iran, if they end up doing nothing, which I hope they end up doing nothing, and I think that there's a lot of people in the administration who hope they end up doing nothing, but it's, it's going to require very careful balancing of a whole number of situations. Uh, if they end up pulling that off, that'll be an example of wise recognition that doing nothing is sometimes better than doing something. My sense of that discussion within the administration, and maybe to some extent the previous administration, is that the military are kind of on the side of let's do nothing here, mm -hmm. our plate is full. And these guys are weird people we don't want to deal with just now, thank you. And, but the elected officials who are sort of telling the national story of the times of counterterrorism, all the rest of this, and oh my dear, you know, nuclear power is uh, the scariest thing out there, that they are, you know, that doing nothing looks bad from their standpoint. So how does a discussion like that play out? And it relates to a question I got from, I think it's Eric, does the military do a better job of using it using an historical perspective in developing their policies and practices. Well, I, I think I just thought of another example that relates to this, and this is the Johnson administration's response to China's nuclearization, which actually I think will tie back nicely into this uh, Iran example. We don't typically think of the Johnson administration as being particularly wise when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, uh, there was a recent poll that, uh, and I, I sort of work at the LBJ school, and so there's lots of people who care about Johnson's reputation in the presidential polls that come out every five years. The who most is his Secretary of State? Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk. Okay. Uh, said Johnson was the worst foreign policy president of any, which strikes me as a little over the top. But the, the reaction to the China situation is interesting. So here you have this state that has been extraordinarily threatening, irresponsible, uh, threatens your interests. You fought against them. They have nuclear oh. weapons. You have a lot of people in the administration. In fact, the Kennedy, President Kennedy wanted to preemptively attack China's nuclear uh, facilities in 1963 and actually approached the Soviets and said, would you be okay if we did this? He sent Averill Harriman over on a secret mission in the summer of 1963, and the Soviets said no. This is news to me. Is it news to you guys? Yeah. Well, it's, it's very well documented. Kennedy thought that once China had nuclear weapons, they'd be intolerable. And uh, it's ironic because the Soviets came to the Americans in 1969 and said, do you mind if we bomb China? And Nixon and Kissinger said, don't do it, and actually used that as a way to go and talk to the Chinese and say, look, <laughs> we should start talking. You've got problems here. <laughs> Again, two examples of doing nothing that really worked out nicely. Uh, and in 64... Johnson put together this Blue Ribbon Commission led by Roswell Kilpatrick, who had been McNamara's deputy and was now in the private sector. And they looked at what should the response be? And they looked at a range of scenarios. On the one hand, they, they called it option one, which was don't let anyone have nuclear weapons, prevent anyone from having it, use military force if necessary, even against the French. There was talking about let's sabotage the French nuclear force. On the one hand, all the way on the other hand to say let anyone have them. We can't do anything about it.
The, and they came down in the middle. <laughs> Let God sort them out. Yeah, I hear that one. But the one thing they did decide that was very smart was, let's not make a big deal about it. If we're on the, the front page of the newspaper every day saying, China can't have a bomb, China can't have a bomb, China's going to start saying, man, we want to think about getting a bomb, right? Mm -hmm. They're paying attention to this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you see this actually in the documents, on uh, the, uh, some of the captured Al-Qaeda documents, where they say, everyone in the West is talking about these chemical weapons. We ought to look into that, right? And that's an example of, with China, the decision was made not to overreact. In mm -hmm. fact, it was downplayed. It was ignored. It was, uh, there were people saying, let's deploy a missile defense system. Let's attack it. Let's sort of create a sort of a, a kind of some sort of new deterrent posture that's threatening China. They did none of that. And it turned out to be wise. And that's an example of, you know, if with Iran, if we said, you know, if you want to build these things, you know, good luck with that. It'd be interesting to see how that would change the political calculus in Tehran. Now, you've said that a number of nations either had or headed toward nuclear, having nuclear weapons and then backed off. Who are they and why did they back off? Well, in the 1970s, there were probably anywhere between 15 and 25 nuclear weapons programs, some really surprising countries. Australia had a super, secret nuclear weapons program, but you didn't know that. Yugoslavia, Brazil, Argentina, South Korea, Taiwan. South Korea and Taiwan, and over time, about three or four times, tried to develop their weapons program. And each time we came in and said, stop that, cut that out. I mean, after Nixon went to mainland China, Taiwan was obviously concerned. And they said, we've got to do something for our own security. South Korea, in the late 70s, when the Carter administration talked about pulling troops out, South Koreans said, well, we're going to be on our own here. We need nuclear weapons. And each of the cases were different, but uh, there's a variety of arguments. There's one argument that the U.S. in many of these cases came in and said, look, we'll protect you. South Korea, Taiwan, West Germany, Australia will protect you. In other cases, uh, particularly a country like Brazil or Argentina, there seems to have been an internal discussion where people said, what do these really get us? We could, why not open our economy and globalize? I mean, you look at Brazil as a great example of this now. It's got this dynamic economy that's growing. Uh, it's developing leadership in uh, all sorts of ways. And they skewed nuclear weapons. And their argument is, and I think there's a compelling argument, that the countries that developed them, they really didn't get them very much. So there's a variety of reasons. The story has turned out to be far more successful uh, than we ever would have thought or predicted. Now, I have, heard a, I have heard a theory from some military guys that uh, outside the military establishment been in that frame of reference who think that um, mutually assured destruction really worked, that uh, the great powers did not fight each other because of MAD, and if uh, nuclear weapons uh, went away, and all we could fight with is, you know, big tank battles and uh, drones and whatnot, that the great powers would go comfortably go back to war with one another. What's wrong with that logic historically? I think it's uh, fundamentally misleading to think that people necessarily go to war because of the weapons they have. What they, you know, states don't decide one day, you know, we have a first strike capability against Canada. We've had it for quite some time. <laughs> we haven't invaded Canada. And the fact is, the Soviet Union and the United States were big powers. They had competing interests. Those competing interests clashed. They had competing ideologies. That was the sort of the source of the friction. They would have had that friction in a non-nuclear world. 
I would actually argue that the nuclear weapons actually increased that friction because it increased the sense of, of uncertainty. It heightened the risks. It made everything more dangerous. I, I actually don't think, um, and this is, I've changed my mind on this. Five years ago, I would have agreed with those military people. And looking, I, I think nuclear weapons uh, throughout the Cold War were a hindrance, not a help to stability. And a lot of the people who trained me would be horrified to hear me say that. But uh, it's, I've spent a lot of time recently looking at the Berlin crisis, and I played a counterfactual. What would have happened in a non-nuclear world over a Berlin crisis? What would have happened is we would have given up Berlin, right? Because we couldn't defend it. It was 100 miles in East Germany. We weren't going to go to war over that. And in fact, Eisenhower says over and over again, how in the hell do we get to defend these indefensible things, these crazy little islands off Taiwan or Berlin? They're indefensible. Yet, because we had nuclear superiority, we thought we could do it. And the Soviets, who said, we care about Berlin more than you do, you couldn't possibly think you're going to defend this. And there was a great amount of misunderstanding for four years that almost led to war. In a non-nuclear world, Soviets would have said, we have a lot more tanks than you do. And we would have said, you know what? You're right. You, have, you get Berlin. Right? And, and that, might not be, that, might not be, that might not be the ideal outcome, but it certainly... The, the opportunities for war and misunderstanding certainly would have, uh, would have been far less. I played the same counterfactual of what would the Cold War look like without the Berlin crisis and the same sort of thing. Berlin and its unusual position was such an irritant that that one problem explains maybe 40% of the tension during the Cold War, and if that had been resolved or if there hadn't been a Berlin issue, I think the Cold War would have been much different. Well, it's interesting. I, I happened to—I was in the army at the time the wall went up, and was sent over to photograph it because that's what I was doing at the Pentagon then. And it was a pretty uh, weird artifact, yeah. kind of slashing across the city and across the German landscape. And the Cold War was deemed over when that wall came down. Um, so the specificity of that seemed to help people sort of say, yeah. "Okay, there was a Cold War, and then there wasn't." 1989, wall came down, and we're done now. Right. Uh, so does it help to have that kind of kind of event specificity to it, to, to historic history does seem to have something like eras these mm -hmm. tectonic shifts tectonic shifts usually happen by earthquakes yeah. and that seemed to be one of them so yeah. do you gain by having that specificity so I, it can be as helpful as it can be misleading mm -hmm. I would say that putting up on the wall in the 1961 you could argue that that was almost the end of the most dangerous period of the Cold War because that was the huh. inelegant solution to a problem the Soviets were facing instability the wall, and the Americans actually realized this the crisis lingers for a little bit longer for about a year but essentially the Soviets are saying this is ours that's yours we're going to deal with this massive outflow of uh, refugees that's destabilizing the regime in this particular way. And there's, it takes a little while for people to figure it out, but in some ways, in ways that aren't necessarily that appealing, right? Because two million people are trapped in this horrendous situation, but it removed the great irritation. And it's not a coincidence that the most dangerous parts of the Cold War had to do with before the Berlin Wall went down or hmm. went up. Now, the Berlin Wall coming down, as my story about the 1970s show, I sometimes wonder about these, you know, what's more important, you know, the development of the uh, Intel microprocessor or the Berlin Wall coming down? That's the kind of things historians have to wrestle with. How are they related? Did one have to do with the other? You're right. People get these images in their mind, and they're very important signposts, but they can often be 
misleading. Um, now, there was a policy thing that happened at the end of the Cold War, which was, the, I think it was the Bush administration then, and they elected not to gloat, not mm -hmm. to declare victory, not to do a victory dance, uh, not to encourage the media to do a victory dance, but just quietly mm -hmm. let that thing pass. How did they know to do that? I think, and this again shows why we have to do a better job of selling history to a general public, because we saw how the Bush administration was rewarded by being voted out of office. <laughs> but they did show very calm, wise, patient management of the situation. Few people, and it, it does, there were a lot of things up in the air. Few people remember this, uh, but at the time, the British and the French were very much against German unification. Margaret Thatcher worked very, very hard to undermine it in whatever way um, that she could and told the Americans, I don't want to see this happen and worked on Mitterrand. And Bush, there were a lot of people at the time saying, why, you know, you can have a sort of a divided Germany, it just look a little different. And the Bush administration made a very wise choice to push forward and it wasn't inevitable that they would do it. That is an administration, and again, it's just one of the dilemmas of American politics. The people that were in that administration are some of the wisest, most thoughtful, historically trained. I just had dinner a couple historically nights Historically trained, that counts. Phil Zellico, I don't know if you know Phil at all. He's a, a, just a, a, an amazing historian and a policymaker and who wrote the signal book on this uh, issue uh, was... Uh, one of the key people making policy at the time. Now again, the politics of it didn't play well at all. Dancing on the Berlin Wall would have probably guaranteed re-election in 1992, but um, that's one of the, again, one of the terrible ironies of history and policy. Gordon Garb has a question. Um, must we wait a decade or two to understand the historical implications of an event or policy decision? Um, what could your five ways tell us now about the impact of, say, 2008? Right. I think or for that matter, the policymakers of 2008. And the main thing it can tell you is humility, that your, your first cut <laughs> is always wrong. But is humility, the process is, is humility good for leaders? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think it's hard to think of the last 10 years and think a little humility wouldn't have been somewhat helpful. Uh, and by humility, it's not just personal humility. It's the idea that using policy to intervene in complicated affairs that we can somehow decide, all right, here's the state. They have a certain way of living. We're going to intervene in a certain way. We're going to transform the way that we're living. Any even a, kind of a slight interaction with history would tell you that that's, that's a problematic notion, right? Mm -hmm. That's not how the world works. And uh, I think that I can't say that these five skills are going to tell you what the consequences of 2008 are. We were talking earlier about um, Neil Ferguson, and I think he thinks 2008 is the beginning of gloom and doom. I actually, I'm more of an optimist, I have a tendency to think that just like the U.S. in the 70s, that this is a period, especially in the kind of things that the world you live in, in the technological world, where it strikes me amazing things are going on, we're a very innovative economy, we're doing a lot better than a lot of other people. There are problems, there are issues, there's things that need to be fixed, but my gut instinct would tell me that the trends look good. But I could be completely wrong, right? Because if I were making these predictions in the 1970s, it would have been much different. But knowing that the odds are that I'm wrong tempers what kind of policy recommendations that I would make. Now, a while back you said you changed your mind about something. It was nuclear policy. And um, is that punished or rewarded in your profession? I had a wonderful dissertation advisor, Mark Trachtenberg. He said, 
what you want to do is go in an archive with an idea of how something works and then be proven wrong because mm. that's what makes it fun. Hmm. You go in and you say, do I you always need a hypothesis going in for that to happen? No, not necessarily, but, but a lot of policy-oriented social science selects evidence to confirm previously held beliefs. And to be honest, historians do this as well. Hmm. But if you, if you keep in mind that the goal, that it actually could be more fun to be proven wrong, because that's surprise, that's the curiosity that gets us looking at these things. We thought the world worked in one way, and then we studied it and learned it worked in a completely different way. Who wouldn't like that? That's exciting, that's fun. And so when you do, when you're trained correctly as a historian, you expect to be wrong. I, I'm just sort of in the middle of finishing a book that's been very frustrating because every chapter I write, which is a separate essay, I end up with more questions than I had before, which informs the next essay and the next one. At a certain point, it has to stop, right? And book publishers say, well, what are your conclusions? Well, you know, I've got you know, some ideas. But, but they want, you know, what are the three things that you're going to come out and say? <laughs> and to sell a book, I might have to say what the three things are, but I don't know I, sometimes. I mean, it's... it's uh, and, to be fair, this is the kind of thing that drives policymakers nuts because that's debilitating. You have people in decision-making positions have to make decisions, mm -hmm. and they know they might be wrong. With, they have to draw sufficient conclusions right. with insufficient data right. every day, right? Exactly, all day long. And which is another reason why I think historians should be more sympathetic. Because mm. one of the reasons the relationship is bad is when we write about people in positions of power. Well, you know, President Johnson was an idiot. He didn't know what he was saying. You don't be... I mean, the, the, Johnson had this, this um, story he would tell. He said, when it came to my desk, the decision, every other smart person in the government had already looked it over and <laughs> passed it on. And there was a stack of papers, yes, and a stack of papers, no. Right? And there was, it was never clear what the right thing to do was. That, most decisions were like that. And so... As historians, I think we could be a little more sympathetic to those challenges that people who have to make decisions could. If it's okay for historians to change their mind, can they help policymakers feel that it's okay to change their mind? Yeah. Or to, as you're suggesting, go into a policy situation, if they have the luxury to do this, to treat something they're trying as a hypothesis that might be wrong, right. and if it is, they're going to have a plan B, hopefully, on the table. Right. I mean, if I were in a room advising a president to do that, every one of their political advisors would throw me out and never let me back in again. And, uh, uh, I mean, but that's you, what needs to change. It's what needs to change. I mean, you, when we were um, at that conference in March, I remember being struck because Phil Tetlock was there, and the whole notion that mm. you know, the hedgehog, or the Isaiah Berlin, the hedgehog versus the fox, the guy or the gal who knows one thing and explains the whole world through that one thing will get on TV and have influence. And he did this major study that showed experts are wrong more often than the general public about predicting major things in foreign policy. But the ones who are really wrong are the ones you see in newspapers who are the hedgehogs who have one way of explaining things. I don't know how you change. That's a so deeper... can this perspective train historians to be... Suspicious of hedgehogs, basically. Yes, yes. Historians should not be hedgehogs, and historians should root out hedgehogs. Are there should be anti-hedgehogs? Uh, but it sounds like there are some to root out. There are I among historians. Um, this Neil's a, uh, Neil's a hedgehog. Ferguson. <laughs> Neil's a hedgehog. <laughs> uh, Neil, let me take that. But Neil is a. Uh, God, it's, 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 
Neil down, Ferguson. Yeah, he's going to be downloading. Historian in a great book called this thing called yeah. War of the World about the 20th century. We had a debate on this stage yeah. about it. Yeah. He said that's the future. Yeah. Peter Schwartz said no, things are getting yeah. better. He is a tremendous, one of the best historians out there, and uh, a, I would say a less than stellar analyst of the present and the future because. Because why? Do you think he has a theory of what's going on? Yeah, because I think um, uh, he's a fox when he's a historian and a hedgehog when he's an analyst, and he sort of has this kind of a bipolar condition. <laughs> so a policymaker, a brilliant policymaker, would use Neil Ferguson's history and be dubious about his analysis because he could recognize these two these bipolar modes in him. How? How do you know when you're dealing with a smart fox versus an over-smart hedgehog? When you hear someone say, this is what's going to happen in China in 10 years, they say, China will do X in 10 years. There's no historic... If you looked at any time in the recent past when someone said, the U.S., Russia, China, anyone will do this in 10 years, their success rate is remarkably bad mm -hmm. and just even framing it that way is an indication that the person's a hedgehog and you should be very suspicious um, just because and again that, that I mean I don't I probably shouldn't have gone on the riff of using Neil as an example but uh, there's more the way you get on television the way you get in op-ed pages is by saying this is how the world works and from that, we know these three things will follow. And people say, oh, wow, what a relief. I thought the world was complicated. Now it's all explained to me. <laughs> right? And it's, it's, it's nice to have people do that. Uh, so what one would want from media then being the kind of responsibility you're suggesting is that they would go back and bust the hedgehogs 10 years later or five years later or a year later when they've been wrong yet again. Right. And, and nail them, you know, right on 60 Minutes or something. Right. During, during this conference that you attended, one of a really good friend of mine, Matt Connolly, had suggested setting up an organization that did that. That struck me as a little bit creepy, actually. But I do think that uh, it is remarkable how uh, people are not held accountable for making these big, broad statements that turn out to be wrong. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a nuclear example again, China. So for, uh, people, one of the biggest debates, of course, in Washington is what are China's intentions? Is it an aggressive state? Is, are we going to be at war with them? I mean, you know these debates. And one way of potentially measuring this would be looking at what kind of military forces they build. Well, for the last 20 years, most people in the nuclear business have predicted that the Chinese would develop a fully robust second strike force that looked like ours. They haven't. They've built nothing. They have a minimal deterrent. It's sitting out there. If we wanted to knock it out, we could knock it out. Not that we would. And they've shown very little interest in behaving the way either the Soviets or the U.S. did with their nuclear forces in the Cold War. Now, I don't know why this okay, is. I didn't know this. Did anybody here know this? That China doesn't have a second, isn't trying for a second strike. Hey, there's, 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 that statement is slightly why controversial. Why is that not news? Well, because uh, it's... I guess if it was news, then they would think they were supposed to. Right. I mean, people, when you tell people this hasn't happened, they say, well, just wait. Like, well, wait for what? They've had a nuclear force now for mm -hmm. four decades. They've had, it's not a money issue, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a technology issue. They could do this if they wanted to. They choose not to do it. They allocate their resources elsewhere. In the future, they may choose to do this. Or if people, they keep hearing people in Washington saying, why don't they do this? And people in China might say, geez, I guess we should do this, right? <laughs> I, I talked to a, um, hmm. a Chinese uh, policymaker who said his great fear was that 
the Chinese military would start hearing these debates and start mm -hmm. realizing that, wait a minute, we should be building more nuclear forces because that's how we're expected to behave. If they're really wise, they'll do nothing. I'm right, okay. right, right. Yeah. I actually think they have been really wise in doing nothing. I think it's the right bet. And they, I, my, I, I don't know this. If I had a hypothesis, it would be you know, we have a minimal deterrent. That's enough to keep the U.S. from invading us. These things don't do very much otherwise. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other things we need to spend our money on. but. Uh, that's the kind of hedgehog thing that people go on again and again. The Chinese are aggressive. They're going to build these forces. Well, why aren't they building these things? Just wait. Just wait. This sort of all goes back to unleash Chiang Kai-shek somehow. Yeah, that yeah, thing, yeah. Uh, Shows how old I am. Two final questions. One, uh, two softballs, actually. One is, uh, what's the book you're working on? It's called uh, <laughs> Blast from the Past, uh, History and Policy in the Nuclear Age. And it's an effort. Blast from the past. Blast the from the past. All right. Blast from the past. Uh, <laughs> which is my attempt to go to the archives and look in the records and try to really understand what was driving thinking about nuclear weapons and how it actually affected and shaped international, the international environment. The question you asked, mm -hmm. was Matt a good thing? Was it a bad thing? These are the kind of things I'm wrestling with in the book. Do you get a sense from that kind of thing of sort of who was right about the the reality that was emerging, who was wrong, and uh, are there any patterns in and leadership matters? I was yeah. trained that in the army. Yeah. So, uh, how do you get? How do you recognize good judgment when it's going on, and well, vice versa? You know, the irony is, for the hard time I sometimes give policymakers, if you if you look in this, say, this particular question, there were intellectuals, people like Thomas Schelling, you know, Albert Walsh, that are participating in these debates, and. They're also the ones who wrote the history of the period. You go back and look at the, the, the records and you see a guy like Kennedy reading a shelling paper and saying, God, this is nuts. I'm, this isn't how policy works. There's a paper during the Berlin crisis where Schelling says, we need to show the Soviets we're tough. We'll launch a demonstration weapon against Kiev or Minsk, just to show them we mean business, right? And to the game theory crowd, this made complete sense. To a guy who actually had to get elected, say, what does he want me to do? I, I, and so, now, it's the Schellings and the professors who write this stuff and say, wasn't that cool? He had this idea of signaling and all that. But there are, there are, one of the elements of leadership that's important, and especially someone like Kennedy, who had actually a love of history, he, hmm. he, he, he was confident enough to realize that these people who were supposed to be really smart maybe didn't really necessarily know what... Uh, was the wisest thing, that there was a difference between being smart and being wise. He was a wary of experts. There are some of our presidents have been steeped in history, and a lot have not. Is there any clear distinction in the quality of their administrations from that? You know, it's, uh, I'd love to say, well, what you need to do is to make professors presidents, and then I think the, the probably the smartest presidents we've had IQ-wise have been Woodrow Wilson and uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, and that's not too good, sort of, I mean... Uh, that's IQ. Yeah. yeah. Truman loved history to a right. certain extent, Wilson did. I, I, a guy like, I mean, Kennedy and FDR, Lincoln, people who had a sensibility, a historical sensibility, huh. a sense that they were part of something larger, and a sense that things weren't always black and white, and that some, you know, 
one of the things that's interesting about both FDR and Lincoln is they would sometimes let decisions unfold and they would only intervene mm -hmm. at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Someone like a, a, a Wilson. Seems to do that yeah, like that. yeah. Someone like Wilson or um, you know, the, the younger President Bush, there's an early intervention. I know what's right. Where there's a kind of wisdom. You know, FDR and Lincoln, I mean, this is the Doris Kearns Goodwin book, uh, having lots of people that disagreed and see how things emerge. You have mm -hmm. to have a lot of confidence to be able to do that. And uh, Kennedy also had that as well, where you have people disagree and then you can say, all right, I'm going to make the decision, but I'm not going to make it till I, the absolute last moment that I have to make it. It's to me like something that you could write usefully on would be what historical sensibility means yeah. in a decision maker. It's a great suggestion. Final question from Jerry Mikulski. How might we contact historians alone or in concert to get nuanced readings of the state of the world at present? <sighs> I'll, I, you can let the record show them. there was this long, gusty sigh. Yeah, I, uh, you know, there's, there are some, we one in the audience tonight, Daniel Sargent over there, one of the rising star historians who's at Berkeley, and so, uh, Daniel, do you mind if anyone in the audience contacts you? Uh, Raise your hand, Daniel. Yeah. So, so gather around him and get the historical sensibility by osmosis. I, in all seriousness, I think that, uh, as a professor and as a historian, I'm in an extraordinarily privileged position where I spend my days thinking, teaching, reading, and writing. I live a dream life, and I have an obligation to use that knowledge and that understanding and try in whatever small way I can to share that with other people. I don't necessarily think that's a culture that we have in higher education, uh, but it's one that I hope over time will develop. and. Uh, Are you saying that right now higher education is where people get to engage historical thinking? Well, my hope would be uh, you've got these great universities all around here with amazing historians that it would be a much better world if those historians engaged in audiences like this instead of just writing for each other. One and of the questions here was uh, we have a surgeon general, should we have an historian general? Ooh. You know, there was some talk in the Kennedy administration, because Arthur Schlesinger used to go around and follow oh, uh, the president to have, court to have historians, but the worry was they'd become court historians. Would they be critical uh, enough? And does getting too close create That's a problem? That's historians looking in. I think what we're talking about is historians looking out and being listened to as they do that. Well, we don't like simplicity and generalization so the, or rules. So the idea of having one guy or gal in charge of it all saying this is good and this is bad is, is probably not going to work out. I mean, his, history and historians, it, it's, it's more organic. But I do think somehow or another more needs to be done to encourage historians to engage larger audiences. And some people do do that, right? And there are they, these are history books sell very, very well when they're written for a larger audience because people have an extraordinary appetite some good for contemporary examples of that that these guys could read? Uh, well, uh, at Stanford, it was David Kennedy writing uh, on the, the, a wonderful book about the Great Depression uh, mm -hmm. that is, he is a top-notch you know, first-rate historian. Another one at Stanford, David Holloway, writing about the Russia's nuclear program uh, in a style that's engaging and that's smart and doesn't sacrifice anything uh, uh, in terms of its sophistication and uh, complexity. So are, are historians allowed to write about the present from their historical framework? Not if they want to get tenure. <laughs> 
I have tenure, so you know, poor Daniel over there. I don't so if we start this new discipline, they will get tenure for doing that, right? Hopefully, yes. I mean, I, look, it, this is a whole other conversation. I mean, I have a lot of ideas about how the university needs to be blown up and redone and disciplines need to be blown up and redone and how it, it's a no way to run A chortle went through the room at that. Yeah, right? I, 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 I think that we're higher education in America, especially in the humanities, is like GM 10, 20 years ago, and we think everything's fine, and someone in China right now is looking at this saying, that's no way to run a railroad, and we're going to find ourselves 20 years from now wishing that we had thought a lot more and a lot more seriously about this. And I say this to my colleagues. I'm like, that was a forecast. I heard you Yeah, do I know, I know, I know. I, I do that as a hobby, so uh, <laughs> as a hobby. Okay, so if we engage historians in hobby mode... Oh, he's we, got we me now. Get some of what you're talking about, yeah. which it sounds cool to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, and I'll put the historian hat back on. The modern university we live in is a product of the late 19th, early 20th century. The disciplines we have hmm. uh, were created from a specific historical context, and for a variety of reasons, they haven't changed. They've changed in the sciences. They've changed, particularly in the life sciences, where some amazing right. things are going on in the sciences university. Sciences push things, yeah. yeah. But History it, isn't a science, evidently. No, and although here my critique is against humanities and social science, I actually think history, because it is very hard to define as a discipline, actually provides some hope for getting around this. Uh, because historians are comfortable using science and anthropology and economics and whatever helps explain how things work. They have no problem. It's a grab bag of knowledge. Whereas the disciplines, if you're a political science, you want, scientist, you want theory. If you're an economist, you want you have this certain way of viewing things. And it's very closed-minded. So I actually think history does provide part of the solution if historians would only wake up and realize it. Good luck doing that. Thank you a lot. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.